I can't wait to share with you this very special and important episode with you here today. Get out the tissue box for this one. But um, I really need to tell you first about a very special live event we have coming up on Wednesday. This one also helping to protect and uh, speak out for women everywhere. We concluded that for pregnancy, the COVID-19 vaccines are category X, meaning under no circumstances should they be used. I've been yelling about this for a long time. Um, and I've been the only one, the only maternal fetal medicine doc, and the only OBGYN doc of 25,000 in this country. Until now, March 8th, live at 9 p.m. Eastern time, OBGYNs speak. The first ever panel of OBGYNs and postpartum RNs collectively breaking their silence on COVID shot, adverse reactions in pregnant, unborn, and the fertility of their patients. A group of OBGYNs have never stepped out like this before. Join us for the live event, listen to the data, share your experiences, and ask the Globe's top leading doctors your questions by standing up for women everywhere in a way that no one else is on International Women's Day. Here with us on Faithful Freedom with Taryn Grayson, presented by We the Patriots USA. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. We have two widows on tonight, Matthew Cresto and Josh Hardison, who uh, lost their wives uh, shortly after giving birth in the hospital. Their wives were admitted to the hospital for COVID just before giving birth, and they went on to die. So many stories we've been hearing like this over the past few years of once you're admitted to the hospital for COVID, you don't make it out. And uh, this is a tragic story of two men who lost their wives just just right after uh, their babies were born. This is, it's inexcusable. And they take you through all the inconsistencies, all the different ways that uh, that they say, and they show that there was negligence and there was deliberate Things happen deliberately uh, and were done deliberately uh, to the to their wives. And so they'll take us through these stories. And you know why I think that this is so important that we tell these stories. I hope that I am somewhat of an advocate and a voice for, for women out there that have been through this pandemic, pregnant women. I myself had two babies during the pandemic. That's how long it, it went on and how close, of course, my, my kids were. Uh, how close they were back to back, but I know from all different angles how hard it is, how hard it was to be a pregnant woman during the pandemic, from you know giving birth in the hospital to choosing a home birth because it was so hard to give birth in the hospital, what it was like to feel pressure to get vaccinated, to not have the correct information, not have informed consent, have doctors and nurses and family and friends telling you that you should be doing different things. I also know how scary and how hard it is to get COVID while pregnant. I was about five weeks pregnant whenever with my second, whenever I got COVID, how scary of an experience that is. I know how hard it was. And yet I cannot even imagine, not even close, not even close. I can't even imagine how hard this experience was for these two men and everything that they went through, but it is without a doubt that they are heroes, their families are heroes, and their wives who did everything they could to save their babies, how they are heroes too. So we're going to hear from Josh Hardison 
and Matthew Cresto about their wife, Christy and Nicole. Where do we go from here? Because the battle has just begun. As eyes open, we continue to arm ourselves with the truth in all aspects of our lives, asking questions and relentlessly searching for answers, educating ourselves and forging a new path forward. Hear from real people faithfully pursuing freedom. This is Faithful Freedom with Taryn Gregson, presented by We the Patriots USA, a nonprofit 501c3 organization working to preserve and reclaim our God-given inalienable rights. Matthew, Josh, thank you so much for joining our podcast and our show today. And I just want to start off by saying you both are heroes for sharing your story. Your wives are heroes for doing everything they could to protect their their babies um, while they were alive. And um, you all are heroes for carrying on their legacy. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Matthew, Josh, first, before we get started, uh, give us an update on your littles. Now that they are a little over a year old, you're joining us about a year after uh, your wife's passing, but you know, you have two, two little lives that you, um, you know, take away from all this. So Matthew, first, tell me how, how your little one's doing. Caleb's doing great. Um, he is running around the house. Uh, he eats everything in sight, pretty much. Um, if you put it in front of him, he'll chow it down. Um, and he's doing very well. Uh, he's an absolute daddy's boy. Uh, I walk when I walk through the door when I get home. He doesn't even know it's me, and he's already saying "dad, dad." I can hear him from across the other end of the house. He knows the moment I walk through the door. So he's an absolute joy. That's so wonderful. And, and Matthew, uh, that was you and your wife together had five children. So um, you are a, a seasoned father. And Josh, this was your first. So what's it been like, um, you know, in the past few months as you've seen your little girl become a one-year-old and, and all that she's doing? It's, it's amazing. She's doing great. Um, luckily, she doesn't have any health problems or anything else like that. Um, she's eating everything in sight. I mean, loves to eat. She's so close to walking. Um, I had her at the park earlier today. She's pushing her little toy all over the park. And, you know, she says the dad thing too. And that, that was just amazing. She started that right before Christmas, I think the day before. And uh, best Christmas present ever, all things considered. So, but she's doing really good and super strong. Oh. You, you all are very, very strong. And the reason why uh, I wanted both of you to join me together at the same time is to bring to light and to show to people that this happened to numerous women, to numerous couples and parents around the United States that so many um, people have lost their, their pregnant wives or wives that just soon gave birth because of these hospital protocols, you you two show that it, it's not just an anomaly. Um, so I, I'm so honored that you both are joining tonight. Josh, let's start with your, you both kind of have similar timelines in the, the fall winter of 2021. Josh, let's start with with when you brought your wife, Nicole, uh, to the hospital. She was 31 weeks 
pregnant in December on December 5th of 2021. What why'd you guys bring her in? What was her condition like? Well, for the last two months, she had been short of breath, but she had got COVID, I think, on November 28th. And, uh, of course, the OB just told her to sit at home, lay down, don't do anything. You know, the obvious, everything wrong with that. And uh, he said he could provide monoclonal antibodies, but I found out later that he highly recommended against it. And uh, so I took her to the hospital because she was severe breathing difficulty. I um, didn't know what to do. I knew not to take her to the hospital, but I mean, your wife's pregnant and she says, take her to the hospital. What do you do? I mean, you take her to the hospital and uh, it was about 10 o'clock at night and I, I showed up at the ER and uh, they come out and they're freaking out and they got mask on and they're like, where is your mask? You need to get back in your car. And, and so I'm like, look, I, I need a number so I can get an update on her when she went in because they wouldn't let me in and they were kind of militant and everything. So they're like, I'll just wait in your car. A nurse will call you in a little bit. Well, I waited in the car for a couple hours. No updates. I get a few texts from my wife and uh, not getting much out of her. So then I finally get a, uh, I go back up there and they're pretty mad. And I finally get a number to talk to somebody in there. And of course she went in saying that she doesn't want the rendezvous And uh, well, they gave it to her anyway. So uh, they took her in, gave her rendezvous, told her it was an antibody infusion, not rendezvous. Wow. So uh, they had her in the ER. They wouldn't give her any water or anything. The OB on call that come in ended up giving her some water. Um, the doctor gave her a hard time about not being vaccinated, and she needed to get on social media and tell other people that this is why they should get vaccinated and they told her from the get-go that they were going to admit her before they even, you know, checked her vitals or anything else. So it's, it really seems like it was all about the money. You know, you check these boxes and get all this money through my research on all this stuff. And I'm so, sure, uh, I'm sure you guys have done so much research after all of this, you know, looking into, to what happened to them. So right from the start, Josh, you're, you're getting, you know, you're not getting, you're getting false information. You're not getting truth out of these doctors. They're telling you, they're telling your wife that they're giving her, um, you know, one thing and, and they ended up giving her ribdesivir instead. Uh, did they, they didn't let you in. Did they know right off, right from the start, what your vaccination status, yours and your wife's were? Oh, they asked her from the get go. They yeah. didn't ask about mine. And uh, I didn't get to talk to a doctor. She went in on a Sunday the 5th. I didn't get to even talk to a doctor till Tuesday. Wow. And that's wow. after talking to like patient relations and ethics committee administrators. And, and they kind of gave me the runaround. And I was like, look, it's my wife. And uh, I haven't talked to a doctor yet. And then they kind of changed their tune. And so then the, the doctor at the hospital, he blamed everything on the OB and the OB blamed everything on the internal medicine doctor at the hospital. So that was, uh, mm -hmm. that was pretty unbelievable. And we'll, we'll walk through this process together, you know, so we can see some of the similarities that you both, um, that you both underwent and, you know, you're in different parts of the country as well. <laughs> so it's not like you guys experienced the same thing, similar scenarios in a in a similar area i mean you both are in different states matthew what was 
your wife's condition? What was Christy's condition like whenever you brought her to the hospital? And that was on October 9th and she was 36 weeks pregnant. Yeah, she was 36 weeks pregnant. Um, she started having trouble breathing. Um, she actually got it from me and, um, she was starting to like hyperventilate and she was getting really worried because she knew that she was pregnant and she was close. Um, and several of our friends said, well, take her to the hospital. You know, that's all you can do. And I was, I didn't want to, and she didn't want to either, but finally we said, well, what, what choice do we have now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can understand, you know, being 36 weeks pregnant and, and not, you just want to do everything that you can to, to help your baby. Um, so she was admitted on October 9th at 36 weeks. And then your son was born the next day. Yep. Mm -hmm. So how did that process go down? Because, you know, she's 36 weeks pregnant, which, you know, unless she goes into labor, typically you're not being induced at that point in time. So that's actually what they did. They induced her. Um, mm -hmm. They, we told them that she was 36 weeks and they said, well, let's do an ultrasound just to make sure. So they did their ultrasound and they came back and said, well, you're actually 38 weeks and your baby is about eight point eight pounds, six ounces. And we're like, well, that's next to impossible because we had an ultrasound a few weeks before that. And they measured them out at a little over five. So, but you know, and so they changed, so they changed what the, the, you know, estimated due date was going to be then on you guys, which, yeah. you know, as someone, I too was getting different measurements toward the end of my pregnancy. And I had my midwife tell me, you never change the due date that far into the pregnancy because it's not, the measurement's not going to be accurate at the point in time. You stick with it from the, from the due date that you were given toward the beginning. And, and she gave me so many different reasons. So that really stuck out to me in my head as, you know, medical professionals that they would do something like that. Josh, uh, give me, give me your timeline then, you know, it, December 5th, your wife's, your wife, Nicole, 31 weeks admitted to the hospital. Uh, then when did they decide to perform the C-section? So she was in there on that Sunday, the 5th. So on the 6th, mm -hmm. they, uh, I was calling and getting updates from the nurse. You know, I call and First thing in the morning, about five before shift change, you get an update from the night shift nurse. And then I found out they had given her rendizavir and that she was admitted to an intermediate care floor. And uh, I guess it was the 8th, which was a Wednesday. We ended up forcing their hand to do a C-section. Um, talking to family, praying about it. The, the OB, I found out through a nurse, wanted to basically have her what's the word uh, they wanted her to basically go on the vent and then they do the c-section and I, I was just like you know before it goes to that point why don't we separate the child from the mother so you can treat each patient separately i thought we were a little further along than what they said because we, we knew exactly the day that she was conceived, but that never lined up with the OB. And of course they changed the due date a few times on us in the beginning. 
Mm-hmm. And we knew how big the, the child was at the time. And I know 31 weeks was a lot better than 26 weeks or 29 weeks. And I, I know the, the, the good they do in the NICU. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess it was that Tuesday they had uh, sent in a kidney specialist. And then I got on the phone with her that day. They were letting me in two hours a day in the afternoon, four to six, because patient right to see, right. The, the patient, no patient left alone care act in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. They would let me in. And uh, I got to talk to the OB the day before, and he was just, uh, he was awful to me. I mean, he come in the room, you know, the best thing you could have done is took the shot, you know, four or five months ago when I offered it. And, you know, I'm asking him questions about other treatment protocols and stuff. I was pretty familiar with the ivermectin. I uh, mm-hmm. wasn't sure about doing it when she was pregnant, which I later found out would have been a, a go in the third trimester. And uh, she wasn't going to do anything to, to hurt our child. So we got her off the rendizavir and they were pretty pissed at me at the hospital for convincing her to do that. And they're like, well, you know, it's the only thing we have to treat it with. And then they're like, you know, she's going to ICU that Wednesday. And so I got to talk to the ICU PA first and I'm asking her, I'm drilling her about questions. And she's like, tell me how the, uh, the, the COVID kills your kidneys. And then I asked about the rendizavir and then she slipped up and told me it was mostly liver failure that the rendizavir was causing. And of course that didn't go well. You could tell that she didn't, she probably wasn't supposed to tell to expose that information. So then I got to talk to the ICU doc and I'm like, look, why don't we schedule this before her condition goes downhill? And then you got two viable patients and he's, he was pretty cool doc. He, he was honest and straight up with me and told me that uh, he doesn't deal with pediatrics, let alone infants or NICU patients. He only deals with adults in the ICU. So when I got to go in at four o'clock, he showed up with his PA, the doctor over respiratory for the hospital and the doctor over the, the NICU at the hospital. And uh, I got in there about 30 minutes before they came in and I didn't really talk to this to my wife on the phone. So I explained to her what they wanted. They wanted her condition to go downhill to where they had to do a C-section and I wanted to schedule it. And a couple other people in the family agreed that that would probably be the best route. So after talking to them for a while, I do have a, a small medical background in, in my twenties and, and teens. And uh, we get a good way through the conversation and they asked me that I have a medical background. I was like, yeah, I have a little. And then, they all agreed unanimously that it was best to schedule the C-section and go ahead and do that. So you have two viable patients. So because uh, the C-section is, I mean, it's major surgery. I've had a C-section with my first child and um, it is a major surgery. So you guys are in the mindset, you know, let's, let's keep each of them as healthy as we can going into this major surgery. Absolutely. And I made mm-hmm. it crystal clear that I didn't want her intubated at all costs unless yeah. it was, you know, there was nothing else. So uh, they, that night, the uh, the OB on call come in and she told my wife how good she was doing in the ICU and stuff. And part of it was, I think they let her sit up in the bed, which they weren't doing on the other floor. And, you know, that just helps a lot. That's like mm-hmm. first thing you do if somebody has breathing difficulty, you sit them up. And, you know, I had got the ICU doc instead of a, a nasal cannula because she was super congested. I got her to give them a mask and that would just made the world a difference. And uh, that took an act of Congress almost to get her a mask in there, a non-rebreather over a nasal cannula. 
And uh, so the OB comes in. She's trying to take control of the situation, saying she's not going to do the C-section and stuff. And then her pager goes off. Well, I got to go deliver a baby. And she runs out. So uh, two, three hours later, I'm pretty livid talking to the second shift doctor. And they don't want to see me anymore. And I'm like, look, just give me an administrator up here. And uh, I was like, I know it's after hours. You need to call an administrator and get them in here now. And next thing I know, OB comes in, was on board. So they did the C-section. Uh, Charlotte come out kicking and screaming and grabbing for stuff at 31 weeks. She was probably, I think she was four pounds, 13 ounces when she was born. And she dropped to four pounds, six ounces because they were pumping my wife with a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, fluid. Mm-hmm. And uh, never would let my wife see her baby. They took it out and took it out of the room. She never even got to see it. That was uh, was probably one of the things that hurt me the worst. I got to see her in the PACU for a little bit. And then they told me to go home because I was well past my two hours. And I tried to argue with the nurses and tell them my phone and my coat and everything's upstairs because it was December and it was coldest December I remember. And uh, I was like, well, you know, let me call this doctor that, you know, was been so good up here and I got yelled and screamed at for that, saying that he doesn't run the hospital. He just works here. And the anesthesiologist walked in, and I think they kind of get away with everything. She's like, oh, he can walk up with me. So I get to walk up with my wife and see her. And uh, we get to the room, and I asked her to take a deep breath for me. And she could take this amazing deep breath because my wife had a small frame. She was 5'2", and uh, she could take this huge breath after the baby was out of her abdomen. She had room to move her diaphragm. and. You know, I thought we were out of the woods then, and I mean, I didn't quit praying, but uh, they kicked me out of the room till the next day, and uh, so then, of course, they they uh, they keep uh, Charlotte in, uh, I guess, the NICU jail and her solitary confinement for uh, 48 hours because they do two COVID tests, one at 24 and one at 48 hours, and she gets submitted to general population, and. Uh, of course, they never would do a COVID test on my wife at the hospital, and I finally had administrator admit that then they couldn't charge for all this stuff if she tested negative. But they said that would never happen, and I was like, "Well, prove me wrong." And uh, they didn't want no part of it. That is heartbreaking. That you know, you're both you're kicked out. You're all of you are separated from from your newborn, and um, you know it doesn't make any sense to me why for only two hours the hospital protocol is that you're allowed in there if you're allowed in there at all why does it matter how much time you're in there it doesn't make any sense at all um and it's just horrific that a mother and child would be separated um it's just horrific matthew take us through your birth story and and how that transpired um for you guys okay so after they um, overestimated his age and weight. Um, my wife brought up, uh, that she had heard about hospitals taking babies away and they assured us, they said, no, we don't do that anymore. That's, that's not protocol anymore. We don't take them away. Um, he can stay with you. You know, she wanted to breastfeed so she could breastfeed, uh, as long as she wore a mask. And she said, that's, that's fine. If I get to see my baby, that's fine. So knowing all that, then, um, they induced labor and um on the 10th he was born she got to hold him for about 10 minutes i held him for about five and then 
uh, he laid in that little bassinet thing with the heat lamp. And about two hours later, finally, a pediatric staff finally came down to check him out. They took him away. They said he'll be right back. And she never saw him again. Not not while she was awake. Um, Did they give you a reason why she could never see him? Because she had COVID. Never mind the fact that she had COVID with him already in the womb. Exactly. So thereby he's getting the antibodies that she was making. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So she, uh, she never got to see him. They refused to bring him back to the, uh, back to the room. Uh, when she got moved up to the adult ICU, uh, I asked, you know, when can we see him? Like when it, at the very least, when can I go see him so I can assure her that he's okay. And uh, the, male nurse that was there said, well, you, you can't go see him. I said, why not? They said, because you're exposed to COVID. And I said, what the hell does that matter? I already had COVID. She got it from me. I'm fine. Why can't I go see my son? They said, well, you're going to have to quarantine for 14 days. And I said, okay, so in 14 days, I can go down to see him. No, you have to leave the hospital and quarantine for 14 days. You can't come back. And I said, there's not a chance in hell that I'm leaving this hospital, not after everything that's happened so far. And they said, well, you, you can't go see him. Three days later, they released him to me uh, under my care. Well, he, they allowed me to go down to see him in three days. And to prevent any possibility of them trying to take him again, uh, I had uh, Christy's mother pick him up from the hospital. But yeah, they let me go down into the NICU and see him, hold him. Um, after only three days, so much for the 14 day quarantining. Yeah. The inconsistencies are just everywhere. They're all over the place. And, um, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that that was the only time that your wife got to spend with your child. I'm so sorry. I mean, she did kind of see him again, but it was after she was ventilated. So mm -hmm. you know, she wasn't really quite all there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is coming after, was she told that she, at first, was she given the impression that she would be able to breastfeed oh, yeah. the baby? Yeah, yeah. They, they told her that she'd be able to breastfeed and their solution to him still being in the NICU was, oh, well, we'll bring in a breast pump for you so you can mm -hmm. pump and we'll feed it to him. I don't know that they ever did, but yeah, uh, which we all, we all know that um, it's more than likely, you know, that the mother's going to pass down the immunity to the child. And it's right. also likely that they would be doing so through the breast milk and be helping the child, you know, be healthier. Yeah. And, as well. and even, and even beyond the feeding part of it, the bonding between a mother and child and they, they completely, negated that possibility. Do you think that that for the both of you had anything to do and and how it played into your wife's condition it, both of your wives how your your wives were were separated from their newborn babies? I can't even imagine the heartbreak that that causes. Absolutely, yeah. Um my wife uh when they when they said that he couldn't come back up um, it, it, it destroyed her. Like she was completely beaten, defeated. And 
I had actually, I, I was talking with one of the um, doctors in the ICU about getting my son to come in. And they said that after 20 days of her being admitted, that I could bring him back in because at that point they consider her no longer contagious. Uh, unfortunately, she was ventilated two days prior to that date. And and Josh, do you feel the same way too? Do you think that you know Nicole would have maybe gotten better had she been able to have that that precious time? Oh, definitely. She uh, she didn't tell me exactly. Um, she told another family member via text message that she thought it was surreal. She didn't know if she had the baby, didn't know what was going on, whether it was a dream. Um, luckily, I went against medical advice. They told me after Charlotte was born, they told me to go home. They told me to go home and quarantine for 10 days so I could be there for my daughter. And uh, I was like, you realize my wife just had a, a child and there's postpartum depression and, and she doesn't even get to see her child. I was like, my number one concern right now, my daughter's in the NICU. She's going to be fine. I was like, it's my wife. She needs my support more than anything. And they would remind me of that every day when I'd come in. And um, the following day after Charlotte was born, that was a Thursday, my wife was pumping breast milk and uh, refusing the pain meds so that she could pump and, and she's trying to get her milk flowing. It was our first child. We were kind of new to all this. And uh, the next couple of days, she actually did really good trying to get in a little bit of milk pumping at, in the, in the ICU. And uh, a couple of days we had decent nurses, you know, they would, uh, they would let her sit up in the bed. Of course, they don't want you to get out of the bed because, you know, that helps your lungs get rid of fluid and everything else. And, you know, they don't want you to use an inspirational spirometer or back palpations, none of that stuff that they do for pneumonia. And, of course, they said it was it's always COVID pneumonia, even though the, the sputum that they take samples of never shows pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So she was doing really good with that. And then, you know, then they kick you out of the, the ICU a couple of days later. And when she left that, well, actually, the day after she had Charlotte, the, the doctor was like, uh, you can bring her in anything you want for her to eat. And I was just, you know, whatever she wanted, I would bring her. And she was doing really good until she got sent downstairs to a intermediate care floor. And it was pretty crazy. The whole time she was in the hospital, everywhere she was on the intermediate care, the ICU, and then back at the intermediate care, the whole hospital was COVID patient, non-COVID patient. Every other room was a COVID patient and the rooms in between were non-COVID patients. And it wasn't like they had just separate wards of the hospital for COVID patients and not. And the crazy part was in the ICU, they have a switch on the outside of the wall that's activated with a key that you can turn. And none of them had negative pressure ventilation, which would suck the air out of the room. But on the intermediate care floor, they had, they had fans in the window, so you really couldn't hear anybody talking to you. Or it was like... I mean, it was like something out of a sci-fi movie. I really think it was like psychological warfare. Like they planned this stuff out intentionally. I and, mean, the way they treat you when you go in, you got to sign in, you got to, you know, jump through all these hoops to get in. I mean, the lady at the missions desk, I bribed her with candy. I figured out what her favorite candy was. And I brought this big, huge, like 36 ounce bag of peanut butter M&Ms. And I brought those in and you'd have to call in during the day to make sure you could come and then come later and sign in. And, and, uh, it, it was, I mean, it, it was unbelievable. And then 
you talk to family and friends and they're like, oh, you're conspiracy theorists. You're crazy. So that was, you know, you're living it. Though. Yeah. You're yeah, living it, so, you know, I, I was in there. I get to go in from four to six and the rest of the day I'm on the Internet doing research and, mm-hmm. and looking up other stuff. And, you know, you say that the, the I word and everybody freaks out or if you're on YouTube, you get censored. And mm-hmm. it's uh it was it was unbelievable. Matthew, you're shaking your head while Josh is recounting this story. Um, why is that? Uh, just because it sounds all too familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, they will deny absolutely everything possible. Um, I, I, I beg them for that. I beg them for monoclonal antibodies, ivermectin, NAC, uh, steroids. She was an asthmatic. I, I begged them to give her breathing treatments. And the ICU director said, that's not going to cure COVID. I said, I don't care. She's an asthmatic. Treat her asthma. Mm-hmm. Um, they denied uh, a pulmonologist three times. I had to, I, I had to talk to an administrator uh, to finally get um, anything to happen. Um, the ICU director who was her doctor, um, said, well, I'm very well versed in pulmonology. And I said, I don't care what you're very well versed in. What's your title? Oh, you're ICU director. Okay. So you're not a pulmonologist. Mm-hmm. Great. Bring me a pulmonologist. Well, he's my best friend. He's going to agree with me. I said, I don't care. Bring him. That's incredible. The, the, the runaround that you get and you're not able to to speak to the people that you want to. You're not given direct answers. Um, you're not given the correct experts. Um, you know, the way that you're both recounting this, it's almost like your your wives are prisoners. And yet I think that everyone kind of forgets you're the you're the customer. You know, they should be doing what you what you want to do. I think people forget uh, sometimes, you know, when you're a part, when you go to the hospital or you go to the doctor, you're the one paying, you're the customer, you're the one that they should be serving and should be honoring your wishes. And um, so it's, it's hard to hear your story, uh, your stories, Matthew, I'm going to bring up some, um, and I want to give a little uh, visual warning for people. If you're watching this on uh, rumble or anywhere else, um, that has a visual medium for this show. We're about to show some fairly graphic photos of the some of the injuries that your wife suffered while she was in the hospital. Um, so here we're going to show these these photos. Matthew, tell us about these and and what Christy was experiencing here. So uh, I'll start with the picture on the right. Um, my wife had very 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 small veins. I warned them about that. And they just kept stabbing her wrist to try to get a blood gas. And I told them, it's not going to work. You're not going to hit it. It's not going to, you're not going to be able to do it. And they said, oh, well, we'll we'll bring in a specialist. Okay, sure. Go ahead. So that's what her wrist looked like after failed attempt, after failed attempt of them trying to get um, an arterial line. Um, The picture on the left so a little bit of backstory. Uh, when you're put on a ventilator, you're not supposed to remain in the same position for more than two hours. And you're supposed to be flipped. I believe it's every 16 hours at the most. So 16 hours or sooner. They left her 
prone on her stomach in the same position without even so much as repositioning her body at all, like moving her to the left, to the right, whatever, mm-hmm. for over 200 hours. That's the result of nine days in one position. And mm-hmm. her her mother actually uh, is a retired wound care nurse, board certified. And she said that is an unstageable wound and there's not a whole lot that they could do to easily fix that. It's so heartbreaking. The, um, you know, just the neglect that, that, that they both experienced. And, um, I'm assuming obviously they weren't allowing you around at that time as well. Surprisingly, actually, um, they originally at the very beginning, whenever they first took her up to the adult ICU, they tried to tell me to go home. And I said, you can bring the police. I'm not leaving. I said, you go right ahead and try and tell me I have to leave. After everything that you guys have done, there's not a prayer that you're getting me out that door. And they, and the nurse said, well, I'll just bring an administrator down here and they can tell you why you have to leave. And I said, you go right ahead. I'll be waiting. Mm-hmm. 45 minutes later, and this is the one of the very few good experiences I had at that hospital. Um, 45 minutes later, the AOD walks in and says, so are you ready? Do you have everything you need? I was like, um, what do you mean? I was, ex- I was expecting, yeah. you know, to be taken out of there in handcuffs. Yeah. So, um, you called their bluff. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I called their bluff and the administrator looked at me and said, well, do you have blanket pillows, whatever you need? And I'm like, hold on, this is a very different conversation than I was left with 45 minutes ago. And she looked at me and said, no, there's no way I can make you leave. After reviewing everything that's gone, everything that's happened so far, there's no way I can ask you to leave. You're welcome to stay as long as you like. So I lived at the hospital for two months. Mm-hmm. Um, I only left for more than 24 hours twice. And both of those times, something catastrophic happened. Mm-hmm. She was every time right before I left, she was making great improvements. Um, as I said to you before we uh, got on, um, 48 hours prior to her being put on the ventilator, her oxygen saturation was at 100%. She was doing fantastic. The night the night before she was ventilated, she and I she was on a BiPAP mask at that point. Um, she had a video call with me because I had taken two of my boys to a, just a regular checkup that they needed to go to. And it was 1130 at night and we did a video call and through the BiPAP, she was having a full blown conversation. Now she wasn't no sedation, no painkillers, no nothing. Um, and she was able to carry on a conversation just fine. Like nothing was like, everything was fine other than she had a mask on. And then the next morning I wake up to uh, a voicemail saying, you need to call us immediately. And when I called in, they said, oh, we had to uh, ventilate your wife. It was an emergency. I said, what emergency? She was fine last night. And they said, well, her oxygen dropped down to 20% and she gave the okay for us to ventilate her. Hmm. Um, I can't imagine anyone being conscious with yeah. 20% saturation, let alone giving approval. Um, and that seems to be a common thing with this hospital is there's never been any kind of consent or informed consent for anything. Um, they didn't tell us anything about the remdesivir, about the sorolumab. Um, they didn't tell us anything. 
There was nothing. And I went through her medical records and her consent forms say verbal. And there's a nice little line right above the signature line that says two signatures required for verbal. There's one. Mm -hmm. One witness. One witness. Mm -hmm. That's heartbreaking. Let's fast forward uh, to, you know, the, the days leading up to both of your wife's passing. And I'm sure it continues to develop in this way and that, uh, Josh, tell us what happened, what happened uh, to Nicole leading up to her death. So she was in the hospital for five and a half days. She got moved back down to intermediate care. She was doing good. So she was in the hospital for a week. That was the next Sunday. And uh, shoot, they were weaning her off the oxygen. They wouldn't let her get up or move around. They'd make her use a bedpan, which she hated. They, you know, they wouldn't let her sit up in the bed, lay flat. And uh, at this point, she hadn't taken any pain medicine after the C-section. So uh, that Sunday night, I leave. She's doing great. We had a good meal together. I go home. Um, Next day, I get a text. And uh, it was like, hey, don't bring me no food because I'd bring in food and I'd bribe a nurse to take it up there every morning for her. And uh, I'm like, it's too late. I'm already on the way. I get to the hospital. I send the food up. And then uh, I come home to take care of our dogs. And uh, I get a text that says, help. That's all it says. I had tried to call her a few times. She told me she wasn't doing as good today. And uh, it was hard to get any information out of her. So I go back to the hospital and uh, they won't let me in. And uh, I'm calling administrators again, which I was already on a first-name basis with a couple of them. And uh, Go round and round. I, I sat out in the parking deck all day long till four o'clock. They let me in. And uh, that day they took me up to the, uh, they had moved her to the, back to the ICU and said she re- wouldn't, had anxiety with the, uh, the CPAP or the BiPAP machine. And uh, I had talked to the nurses all day and they said she was crashing and they had her on, uh, I was like, well, have y'all changed any of your medications? They're like, oh, we put her on Presidex, which is, I think commonly used for outpatient innovation and uh, it's not really supposed to be given with narcotics over like, I think 30 minutes. So uh, I was like, is there anything else? I was like, is she on any pain meds or anything like that? Oh no, we gave her the Presidex for her anxiety and uh, she's really not doing well. So that night when I got to go in at four o'clock, they got her in the ICU and, and she looks drugged and out of it. And I mean, it was like, it was awful. And of course the doctor, he was a, he was a prick and he tells me, you know, you need to leave and go home. We're going to innovate her. And like, I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. And then, you know, I, I, I was so distraught. I, I didn't even have a chance to look around the room to see what was hanging on the, the pumps or anything or, or take any notes. Cause the whole time she's in there, I had a notebook and I'm taking notes of everybody's names, everything they're giving her everything every day. And, and, you know, the nurses would try to look at that stuff if I wasn't around when I was waiting to get in the room or, when they make you gown up and stuff. And so they kicked me out of the room, they intubated her and I come back in the room and I I guess I was an idiot and I signed the paper for consent. I mean, I I really didn't know what to do. It it was, I know the, the odds of coming off a ventilator is very slim. So they intubated her and she was doing good on the intubation and 
you know, I'm talking to the doctor. I had a lady in Texas that was helping me advocate for my wife because I couldn't get a lawyer in town that would go in and, and stand up. I didn't know that at the time that at any point you can refuse treatment at the hospital. I knew more about pre-hospital care. And uh, if you leave and you need oxygen, they got to supply that for you to leave. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea about that. Otherwise, we'd already left. And, you know, the whole time she's there, I got social workers telling me, even when she's doing good, that, you know, she's not just going to be able to leave the hospital. She's going to have to go to a uh, rehab facility in the next town over. And she's probably going to be there for a month before they get out of there. I mean, it was I, I, it's like something out of a movie where they're trying to break your spirit. And it was like I knew already that they didn't want me there. And uh, I later found out that they had her on the morphine pump when they had her on the Presidex. And if I'd have known that at the time, I, I the thought crossed my mind that I should have told them just take her off all these drugs. You're not innovating. And I'm 99.9% .9 sure I, my wife would be here today if I would have said that. Yeah. So uh, it's not your fault, Josh. It's, you know, they they did this to your wife, you know, they're the experts they should know. And you're, I can't even imagine just, there's so much happening all at once and you're just doing the best that you can to, to weed through the situation. Yeah. So after they got her innovated, um, I'm asking the doctor about all different questions, you know, ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress. And then he, he flat out told me before I asked about that, that he didn't even think COVID was an issue. And, and, you know, you get different answers out of different doctors. And every day I would call because they're on 12-hour shifts. I'd call at 5 in the morning. So you catch the nurse before shift change. When she was in the ICU on the ventilator, the nurses wouldn't even report to the, the night shift, wouldn't report to day shift. Day shift wouldn't report to night shift. If somebody asked a question, oh, I charted it. It's in the chart. And uh, so they had her on the vent. And, and then you come in. And some days I'd come in and it was like, you know, there's no food hanging because, you know, you're on a feeding tube then but because that's the only way you get nutrition. So you'd asked about it and they're like, oh, we're short right now. We'll try to get her up some. And then the next day you come in and it was hanging and you'd see the date and the time on it. And it was hanging since the morning and they never hooked it up. So she was being malnutritioned while she was in there. And, uh, you know, they, they come in, play with the ventilator settings and change different things. And, you know, the Friday before she passed, um, a year ago, she was on a, a drug called Diamox, which is for increased spinal pressure and some other stuff. It's a really old, bad drug that that it's not really used much for. But, you know, some doctors will say it's used for changing blood pH when you're on a ventilator, which I, I, from what I've went through her medical records, which is over 800 pages, and it's heartbreaking to go through it, you... Uh, you can only get through a couple pages at a time and the way it's arranged, you can't, it's not chronological. It's, you know, it jumps all around. So they put her on this Diamox and they were going to take her off the ventilator. Of course, they lied to me and told me it was her daily meds. It was a vitamin and a Alexa pro, which she was been on for a long time. So uh, they put that down her feeding tube and then take her off the, the paralytic and the, fentanyl and the propothal, which I had a nurse tell me earlier in the week that they couldn't believe they had her maxed out on the fentanyl and the propothal, and they didn't really think that was right, but it wasn't their place to say anything. So uh, they take her off the paralytic and the propothal and fentanyl getting ready to excavate, and uh, it was like 
taking heroin away from a heroin addict. She was just all over the bed, flopping around. Um, it, it, they never did get to excavate that night. They kicked me out of the room, told me everything was fine. They try again the next day. So the next day they took her off the paralytic in the morning. And then when I get there, they kick me out of the room for about 30 minutes, take the tube out. And, uh, of course gave her the Diamox again that day. And so, uh, every time they try to give her a breathing treatment without butyrol, her heart rate would go down and her, her oxygen sat would go down, which is the opposite of what albuterol is supposed to do. It's supposed to open up your bronchioles and increase your heart rate. So your oxygen will actually go up. And I, I thought that was odd. And, uh, they come in and give her, um, steroids to a, a mask and stuff. And it, it was like a lot of the stuff they gave her would do the complete opposite. Like they gave her a Lasix, which gets water off your, easy to get the water out of the lungs and stuff. And, you know, your blood pressure is going to drop a little bit when you take that. But I mean, it would like bottom out. I mean, it was, it got pretty low. And so that continued through, I started on Friday night. They kicked me out of the room that Saturday after they took the tube out. And then of course, told me everything was going to be fine and, you know, should be fine. And they kicked me out of the room. And of course I knew when I left that they were going to re-innovate her. And, uh, she already had a bunch of places on her face from where they put the little tube holder where it would stick to her face and they'd take it off and it'd pull the skin off her face. And that Sunday night when I left, they gave her the, uh, her daily meds through her, uh, through her feeding tube and they kicked me out of the room and I left my number for the nurse and told her if anything changes, let me know. So then five o'clock my alarm goes off and I call up there and, night shift nurse kind of like sugarcoats it and says, you know, she kind of crashed overnight, but she's stable now. And I had fought actually at that point with, the the, uh, infectious disease doctor and, uh, patient relations and ethics committee administrators that, uh, I had had the time fought down that she had to be isolated on the two hours a day of visitation from the COVID to 21 days from her first symptoms and uh I, I was pretty much a broken man and was tired of over fighting that fight with him so then the next morning when i hear that I, I let my dogs out i get in the car i go to the hospital and of course the nurse manager is freaking out that i'm there and uh i walk in the room and i see all the uh they got these infusion pumps it looks like a blood pressure cuff that goes around a IV bag where they force fluid in and it's usually used for like trauma and stuff. So I see like four or five of those hanging up. One of them still on a bag. Her blood pressure's into like it's like 70 something over 30 something. And uh and they're saying this is stable and I'm like, "Oh shit, she like she really crashed. I wonder what it got to and uh you can look at her skin cuz they push so much fluid in her. It's called edema where your skin gets all wrinkly and crinkly and it, it looks like you know it looks like you're 90 years old when you're not and uh you know i'm by her side holding her hand praying for her and uh you know hoping that uh you know the best is still to come and she's going to pull through this stuff and about 10 o'clock the neurologist that uh conspired with the uh the ICU doc to put her on the Diamox comes in and, 
I, I've never seen a man so scared in all my life. And he told me he's apologizing for the Diamox. And of course, I've asked about this stuff every day and they never told me about it. And so uh, he apologizes, tells me it was a bad decision and, and tells me how wrong it was. And he's shaking, looks like he's going to cry. And uh, so he walks out of the room. So I immediately go to the nursing station and I, and if I, I tell the guy to look at the chart and see how long she's been on it. And he told me the day they gave it and stuff. And, you know, I'm writing it down. And so I call my wife's aunt who works for a cardiologist up North in New Jersey, who uh, used to be a pharmacist. So I give her the information and she calls me back freaking out, telling me how the, uh, you're not supposed to give the Diamox with, a bunch of, like seven medications she was on and it probably explains why they did the opposite of what they normally do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm praying and her, her through the day, her oxygen's coming up and her blood pressure's coming up and, you know, I'm thinking we're out of the woodwork. And, uh, I guess at this point she's been in about 15 days. So, you know, they kicked me out of the hospital that night. Tell me I need to go home and get some rest. I'm going to know a good tour there. And, you know, they don't want to give me any provisions to stay. So I go home and I come back the next day. At, you know, I get there probably six o'clock in the morning so I can get report from the night shift because shift changes at seven and they're at the door waiting to, to walk out. And uh, so a little later, the doctor comes in and tells me she quits making urine. Her kidneys are shutting down and they're going to have to put her on dialysis. And I know how bad that is. And I didn't know about the vitamin C infusion about kidney failure and how amazing that is which you know i already asked about that you know the doctor that intubated her before he intubated i asked about you know monoclonal antibodies that's too late i was like what about vitamin c infusion he's like that doesn't work and i said what about ivermectin and he says oh that's junk medicine that's a waste of time and uh uh you know the doctor comes in and they start the uh the uh, the dialysis machine and uh, of course then when they're on dialysis in the ICU you got to have somebody tending to the patient all the time normally the even when she was on the ventilator a nurse would have four or five patients sometimes at one time in the ICU which used to be unheard of and you know you'd have travelers and stuff and I got all the they'd all give me crap about the rendezvous and I had printouts with the the research and the death rate on the research and when they started rendezvous for Ebola, how that, uh, you know, it didn't even, they didn't even do the full trial period. And I think it was over 50% of the people died in the trial period. And some people even had kidney transplants. So, uh, that was awful. Even had a nurse tell me, you know, she was a traveler. Everybody's got a mortgage to pay and people tell me how bad that is. And I'm like, Hey, at least she's honest. You know, that's, it's admirable for being honest in a time like this. And so they get her on the lives though. Yeah. Go ahead. And, and so then what happened? What the happened? Dialysis and the, the machine would clot up and the filter would clot up. And it, it was, uh, it was pretty bad and I knew it wasn't good. And that Wednesday, the 22nd, you know, her ventilator, they keep changing the settings on the ventilator and 
you know, they take her off the vent and bag her for a little bit to get her oxygen up and put her back on the ventilator. Doctor, the nurse tells me the doctor says there's nothing else we can do. And I was like, I demanded to see the doctor. And, you know, he comes up a couple hours later and, he, you know, her, I think her hemoglobin was down and they call for two units of blood. And, you know, I'm asking the nurse about this. And after the doctor said there was nothing else they could do, they had no priority of getting her any more blood. And, it was, uh, I fought and she got another, another unit of blood and, you know, they told me there's nothing else they could do. And of course, at this point, you know, I'm bawling the whole time, and, you know, I'm like, F your mask. And, and, uh, I asked cause in her intubation tube, you know, you can see all this phlegm and stuff in it. I asked about the, the respiratory therapist about getting that suctioned out and, and she made some sly comment and I was like, Oh, I forgot. There's nothing else y'all could do. You already told me, you know, just get, just get out of my room. You know, this is my time. And then, uh, you know, of course night shift comes in and the nurse is like, Oh, do you want us to, uh, you want us to give her some comforting drugs? And I'm like, comforting drugs. What is comforting drugs? Enlighten me. And she's like, you know, we can, we can sedate her and take her off the, propothal and the fentanyl and you know take her tube out and you know and of course uh, i'm a little blunt and say what's on my mind and don't have much of a filter i'm like so oh it's like a dog you just want to euthanize her and put her down and uh you know that didn't go over good and it just went downhill from there but they brainwashed my wife so much at the hospital the day before they intubated her she was on board with getting the vaccine then so you never know what happens when you're not there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I laid there and held my wife and cried and prayed and watched the monitor. And at this point, second shift respiratory therapist comes in to check on her. And the day shift they had it where, you know, they pump her full of oxygen or oxygen and air enriched air and they'd leave that in for most of the breath and they'd suck it out for about a second and a half and pump her back up again so she couldn't really blow off any co2 and at that point they're not doing any more blood gas when they said they could there's nothing else they could do so they couldn't analyze the co2 on her blood or anything else and night shift comes in change the sentence her oxygen goes up and her heart rate comes down and you know, before that, her heart rate was about 190, and I knew it was just a matter of time that, you know, your heart can only do so much. And they asked me about a DNR when night shift come on, and I basically told them that, you know, her, her organs are failing, and, you know, you, you can shock her, and, you know, you can give all the epi you want, but it's just going to prolong the inevitable, and you're not going to mutilate my wife's body. It, it was a rough time. And Absolutely. Then, you know, Josh, I'm so sorry that that happened to, to Nicole. I'm sorry that that happened to you guys as a family. And um, you're so brave to have fought so hard for her and to continue to fight so hard for her by reliving this and, and being brave and, and telling your story and it's helping other people. And um, you know, I, we just thank you so much for, for doing that. And we're so sorry for your loss. 
Thank you. Matthew, I'll, I'll bring you in and, um, you know, do you, do you feel like you have parallels in, in some of the last days of, of your wife's life as well? And, um, and the fact that, you know, they're, you know, for, for Josh and Nicole, they were giving her so much medication, so many different treatments that they were all conflicting with one another. Um, you know, what were those last days like for, for you and Christy? Um, well, so partway through, um, her stay, it was mid November. I actually ended up making a website to tell her story and the hospital caught wind of it. And the head nurse, um, sent out a mass email to the entire ICU staff as well as the administration and all the doctors uh, informing them of it and telling them not to interact with it, not to comment on it, don't share it, don't even talk about it, and especially don't talk to me about it. Um, and one of the nurses told me that 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 had happened. So at that point, I knew that they knew I was watching them. And I, I figured that they'd be on their best behavior, you know, you know, we're being watched. Hey, if, if we do something stupid, you know, he's going to tell people. So right around Thanksgiving, um, actually it was Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. Um, knowing that I had decided to go to her mom's for Thanksgiving so I could have a little bit of a Thanksgiving with the kids and with her. And I went up there and on, I think, I can't remember exactly which day. I think it was Sunday. Um, Sunday morning, I, I called, I mean, I had called in, you know, Saturday as well, but Sunday morning I called in at nine o'clock and the nurse that answered the phone said, well, her nurse is busy right now. She's with another patient. She'll call you back later. So I said, okay, that's fine. And something didn't quite sit right with me about it, but I said, you know, whatever, I, nothing I can do about it. They ain't going to talk. They ain't going to talk. So about 12 ish, um, her mom texted me and said they, that she had a missed call from the hospital. I, I didn't. I didn't have a missed call. Um, so I immediately called the hospital to find out what was going on. And keep in mind, this is, you know, three hours later. Uh, they said, uh, well, your wife, um, she has a hole in her lung. Uh, she, she, uh, she has a pneumothorax. So we had to put a chest tube in. And I said, okay, should I be, should I leave now? Like, should I come down now? And they said, no, stay where you're at. You're fine. And I was like, well, I'm a couple hours away. So if I should be heading down, let me know. They said, we'll, we'll call you back later, let you know. Um, and that's when I started to get concerned. And uh, a few hours later, um, the hospital called back again and said, your wife coded. And 
with my very limited knowledge of medical terms, I knew that means that she had died for a, a period of time. And they said that uh, it took 15 minutes, but they were able to bring her back. And uh, they said, you should probably come down now. And I'm like, well, that, thanks for letting me know. I'm two hours away. So um, her sister actually drives me down because I was in no condition to drive down myself. Um, drives me down. And when I get there, I, I can see the look in her eyes. And it's a combination of pain and just straight terror, like, she's just the look in her eyes. I, I can't even completely describe it. And they start telling me about what happened again. We'll come to find out that she had actually coded that morning. Wow. So it had been a while before they had let you know. Yeah. They waited over four hours to tell me that my wife had coded and I lost it. I was furious. I, was screaming at anyone that was in the room at the top of my lungs because I was so furious that they cared so much to monitor a stupid website, but they couldn't be bothered with monitoring my wife. They couldn't be bothered with making sure that she was okay. You know, her oxygen had obviously tanked because she had a hole in her lung and the audacity for them to wait hours before contacting me to tell me that something was seriously wrong. Um, thankfully the person that had sent out the email and I told them that I knew about it all. I told them that I knew about the email and they just kind of, did this, you know, they, they wouldn't look me in the eyes anymore. Um, so there we are. Um, obviously, uh, my, myself and her sister are there. Um, and her mom makes her way down too. Um, and a little bit later, I, I had realized that they had shut off all of the machines everything was shut off all of well uh, not not the ventilator the ventilator mm -hmm. was still running but all of the meds that they were giving her all pain management which now i would think that that would be more important than ever seeing as there's a tube sticking out of the side of her chest mm -hmm. um everything was shut off all of it all sedation was shut off all pain management was shut off everything was shut off and i'm like why is this stuff off? And they said, oh, we forgot. <laughs> you forgot? <laughs> How? How do you possibly? So, yeah. I, I, I can't repeat the words that I said. Let's put it that way. I understand. Yes. And rightfully so. so. Yeah. Um, so they turned everything back on and you know, that she was able to relax a little bit. Um, they gave her enough to basically she was out again. Like they, they put her out. She was mm -hmm. completely sedated again. Um, her kidneys and her liver were shutting down. So, 
Um, they decided to start her on dialysis, which I didn't know how bad that is, but according to the blood work, it had seemed to be working. Her kidney function was returning. Um, they were still concerned about liver function, but kidney function was returning. Um, but she wasn't really getting any better. Um, they kept on, uh, giving her uh, pressers to keep her blood pressure up because it kept on dropping lower and lower. And the, the last day, December 1st, um, her temperature started dropping. She, she had had a fever pretty much the entire time. Um, mm -hmm. There wasn't really any point where she didn't have a fever. Um, and her temperature started dropping and dropping and dropping and it went to her starting to go into hypothermia, even with the, uh, the heating blanket, uh, on her and under her. Um, so her temperature kept dropping, her blood pressure kept dropping. And then her heart rate went from always being in like the 130 to 140 range um, down below a hundred and then it kept on dropping lower and lower. And we, they asked us, you know, what we wanted to do. And I said, I mean, I want to keep trying. I, I want her to live, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I don't want to torture her either. Um, and then it, on the first, um, she actually blew a hole in the other lung mm -hmm. and they said, well, what do you want to do now? And I said, uh, you're not putting another tube in her. You're just not. Mm -hmm. You know, do what you can, but uh, no. Mm -hmm. So we slowly watched her die until her heart finally stopped beating. I'm so sorry, Matthew. I'm so sorry that that happened to you too. And that, you know, your wife was in the hospital for so long and you both fought and did everything that you could. And I'm so sorry that the experience happened the way that it did. And I just, I thank you for also, you know, sharing those final, you know, moments with her, with us and how hard that was, I'm sure for you to do. And it, again, you're helping other people, uh, both you and Josh are, you're both helping other people by sharing your story. And we appreciate that. And, um, you know, I, I, I've, I know from reading some other um, articles like the Epic Times that have featured you all that, and, you know, Josh, you kind of mentioned as well with, you know, all the different, uh, all the different treatments that your wives were undergoing, you know, Matthew had said in the Epic Times article that, that uh, Christy, she had such severe wounds to her face and, um, you know, that, that they had to rebuild her face for the open casket. I mean, it's just horrific that what your what your wives went through and this is this is also after their bodies had a baby after all i mean it's just so much that their bodies had to undertake yeah yeah and um you know now that it's been a year uh, a year about a year for both of you a little over a year since your wives your wives have passed josh what has what are your thoughts about it all now? It's probably worse now than it was then. Mm 
I mean, I feel like some entity perpetrated this on us intentionally and had their SOGs and ROGs in place before this happened. Matthew? White coat murder for hire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it was intentional. Absolutely, it was intentional. Um, you know, they incentivized um, the protocols. They incentivized you know, putting COVID on the death certificates. Um, if I had only known then what I know now, maybe she'd still be here. I think that so many people feel that way about so many different facets of what happened during COVID, right? Whether it's the hospital protocols, whether it's the the so-called vaccines, the withholding of early treatment, all of that. I mean, I think so many people are asking that question, you know, why, why did those that, you know, that were making decisions and and putting down all these protocols, why did they do what they did? And, um, you know, I think you both have alluded to it and so many people have, especially with the hospital and these deaths, we know that trillions of dollars, you know, were incentivized for, for people through these COVID packages, these COVID relief packages. Um, and I'm sorry that your families were a part of that. Matthew, I know that you're doing work now with the former Feds Freedom Group and you guys have an event coming up. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So it is down in San Antonio. Uh, it's going to be on March 25th. Um, and it's uh, called halt, sorry, halt the hospital homicide. Um, we're going to have a bunch of guest speakers. Um, give me one second. I have that list actually. Um, a, a lot of big names like, uh, Dr. Artis. Um, sorry. I, I thought I had it up on the screen. That's all right. Yeah, this is the work that the former Feds Freedom Group is doing is wonderful. We've had Gail Sellier on here uh, before from former Feds Freedom Group. Her hospital Holocaust story is is frightening. Um, we've had Scott Shara on here. His his daughter Grace, who had Down syndrome, you know, she also was killed in the hospitals for the protocol that they put on her. You know, we've had several of these stories on here and. Um, and so these are just one of many, unfortunately. Matthew, tell us some more about this event. Um, so as I was saying, a bunch of guest speakers, uh, Senator Bob Hall from Texas, uh, Mickey Willis, the filmmaker, he's going to be there and he's going to be filming it. Um, April Moss, Dr. Witcher, uh, Steve Ryder, uh, who actually founded the Never Alone Project, um, Attorney Tom Renz, Nurse Aaron, Kimberly Overton, um, Jamie Shear, who actually is heading the class action lawsuit against Gilead for making your Desivere. Um, Dave Krieger, uh, I'm sorry, Krieger, who's the host of Power Hour. Um, you know, they'll all be speaking along with myself and, um, several other, uh, people who have lost their, uh, their loved ones. So it, it's, it's going to be an event to, on our loved ones, but also to help 
raise awareness and to hopefully help bring this to an end so soon. Absolutely. It's so important to memorialize these stories um, so that people know what happened and we can come up with solutions and, and move forward and prevent it from happening again uh, in the future. Josh, any final words that you would like to share uh, before we wrap up? Um, it's, you know, you mentioned a minute ago about, uh, why they didn't want to, why they pushed all this stuff, you know, if they had therapeutics and all the emergency use authorizations for the rendezvere, the vaccine, all that stuff loses its emergency use approval. So they, they just pushed all these, these things out of the, out of the light and you know the media censored everything i mean it's kind of makes you think about nuremberg so yeah. mm -hmm. i'd like for something good to come out of this i'd like for a change to happen and uh matt if you want to shoot me some of that info on this uh this event man i'd appreciate mm -hmm. it and any way i can get involved and help i'd be glad to do it Absolutely. i tell you know i tell i i I tell my story to anybody that'll listen, but you'd be surprised. Most people just don't want to hear nothing about it. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it interferes with their little happy little bubble and don't pop their bubble. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry for you, Matt, man. Your, your story is horrific. You too, man. Thank you. Thank you both for, for coming on and sharing these stories and, for being so brave. And again, I just, uh, I just want to tell you both that you're both heroes and your wives are heroes too, for, for saving your babies and for doing everything that they could. And, um, you know, we just, we're so grateful for you guys coming on and, um, we thank you and we encourage people to go to the former Fred's freedom group, um, website to, to learn more about the event and everything you guys are doing to memorialize these stories. It's fantastic. And um, we wish we, we didn't have to do this, but uh, we're humbled to, to be a part, a small part of this here on the Faithful Freedom Podcast presented by We the Patriots USA. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you.